She's brilliant. So, let's let her talk. That's a bit hard to live up to, huh? Look at you all sceptical. Brilliant. Well, I don't think so. I like that about you. Um, hello, uh, I was going to talk to you about um, Greek tragedy and things. Does that sound reasonable? <laughs> Bear in mind, I'm going to take your sullen silence as consent, which for the record you should never do. Um, so, uh, let's talk about a bit about... Um, let's talk a bit about Aristotle. You all look like you really wish that wouldn't happen, but that's exactly what's going to happen. It's bad news for you. So... Um, Shall we start by talking about who watches TV? Some of you, good, most of you. Your generation is supposed to all be on YouTube all the time all the time playing Fortnite. Did you not get the memo? That's the rules. You don't get to watch TV, that's what happened. And do your parents watch soap operas? You know parents, have you all got parents? Yeah. Remember those older people in your house? They're a bit annoying. Those, do they watch soaps? Yeah. Yes, okay, good, like what? Uh, like Emmerdale. is a good example, what else? EastEnders, right, so a few years ago, good. I'm going to put my Diet Coke here. If you take it, I will know it was you. You know that, right? Because I need that. It could have been, yeah, because look at you. Because that could have been the most amazing double bluff. You're like, yeah, it could have been. Look at your innocent face. And you're like, this definitely is not the face of innocence. Yeah, no, I know. Oh, yeah. That was beautifully done. That was really well done. Do you know what I was talking about? Sorry, we'll get back to this in just a second. I was talking about physical comedy on Radio 4 on Wednesday, and that was really well done. I'm literally an expert on that, and that was beautifully done. Really well done. We're going to come back to this later. We may not have time to talk about Aristophanes and physical comedy today, um, but if we don't, you should find me later and we'll discuss it, because that was beautifully done. I was a stand-up comedian for 12 years. I know what I speak of. Yeah, no, you aced it. Both of you aced it. You particularly aced it, but that's because my focus was on you. So you did the thing of being the straight man, which is really hard. It's the tougher job, but you'll never get the glory for it. But the, you'll be the kind of un, you'll be the unheralded workhorse of the double act, but you'll still be the one who makes it happen. Is that okay with you? Great, I'm glad we've got that sorted. The rest of you, I can sort your careers as well. We'll just see how it goes, okay? Yes? Good. So, um, a few years ago, I made a documentary for Radio 4, of which we now know you're a you know, future star, um, about Greek tragedy and soap operas and how they are essentially the same. Right? at least in narrative terms and structural terms, they have, the overlaps are frankly uncanny, and it's not uncanny because it is deliberate, because it is done deliberately. So we're going to go back to Aristotle's first principles. This programme was called Oedipus Enders. Do you see what we've done there? We've taken a Greek tragedy, Oedipus the king, Oedipus Tyrannus in Greek, Oedipus Rex people translate it as, there's no reason for it, he's not a dinosaur, he's not Latin, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but, uh, and then we merged that with EastEnders. Do you see what we did? It's like a small joke, the kind that you have, for, what are you eating? I've just finished eating a cereal bar, you're not in trouble, I'm jealous. What are you having? Oh, no, I don't want those. Are they vegetarian? <laughs> Look at you. Definitely not. You can't have them. It's like, you would fight me for those, wouldn't you? Yeah. Would I win? No. Okay, would you go for my knees? Because I'm quite tall. Is that what you do? And then I would go down. He's scared to hit girls. Well, that's a good thing. You should be scared to hit anybody because people are... You only take one. Well, that, I mean, in a way, let's, let's mark that down as a minor win for today and see if we can slightly get you past the bit where you would hit anybody. Right, give me back my Diet Coke. Give it back right now. 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 You better not have gobbed in it or you're in so much trouble. So, really, Patrick's here. Behave properly. So... Um, why were we talking about that? Oedipus Enders, exactly. So, um, things that are common. It bothers me, you see, that Greek tragedy has turned into a thing which is for other people. That happens in theatres, that you have to pay expensive tickets prices to get into. And that's not what Greek tragedy should be. Greek tragedy was for everybody. 
with some limitations, which we probably, but we might have time to discuss. Um, and I would like it to be the case that you don't feel that Greek tragedy doesn't belong to you. I would like you to feel like you own it by the time that you leave this room. Got it? Okay, good. So, um, if we go back to Aristotle, Aristotle is the greatest theorist of drama who has ever lived, still now. Um, and he was writing in the 4th century BCE, i.e. two and a half thousand years ago, nearly. And um, Aristotle told us that um, for a Greek drama to work perfectly, he set down all these principles that it needed to have. Aristotle wrote about virtually everything, by the way. He wrote about ethics, physics, metaphysics. Um, he wrote about zoology. Um, he's incredibly good on things like beehives. Do you know how he knows so much about bees? Because he has a, a beehive made out of mother of pearl that's so thin you can see through it. So he could see the bees moving around, and that's how he could theorise about them so neatly. The only mistake he makes is to think it's a king bee instead of a queen bee, right? Which isn't a stupid mistake for somebody to make in a patriarchal society. It's quite a sensible mistake to make. So, in fact, people didn't realise it was a queen bee. Actually, it doesn't matter when people realise it was a queen bee. That's not what we're here to talk about. So, Aristotle writes about uh, tragedy. He writes about the poetics. Um, uh, and he tells us that a Greek tragedy should have, amongst other things, unity of place, right? Can you guess what that means? You already did. Who said the family watches Emmerdale? You. It was you. Yeah. yeah. So Emmerdale is set where? <laughs> Emmerdale is set on Emmerdale. That's exactly right. That is the exact right answer. Coronation Street is set where? It's not a trick question. Yes, EastEnders is set where? East it's set in the East End. Right, but it's all a question of focus, right? Emmerdale Farm is just a farm, right? But Coronation Street is a whole street, but it's still set on the whole street. The East End is not set in all of the East End, but... It's, if you rename that programme Walford, it would be the same show, right? The imaginary district in which it's set. If you renamed it Albert Square, it would be the exact same programme, right? It's just a question of... If you renamed it the Queen Vic, which is the royal palace of EastEnders, that is what... It would be the exact same show, right? It's just a question of focus. Workplace soaps like Holby City are almost always named after the place where they're set, right? Are you enjoying that? Because I might need you to stop it. It's a little annoying. Thank you. Um, so... Uh, why was I telling you that? Right, unity of place is crucial, right? Unity of place is important. In a Sophoclean play, right, all the action is going to take place in one single location, which is liminal, right? Do you know what the word liminal means? It takes place on the limen, the threshold between public space and private space. So you have all crossed a limen just to get into this room, right? You came in through that door. In fact, you had a whole corridor of liminality. So at that point, you were definitely between things. You were outside, you were in the outside world, and you came into an inside space. And you came into a space which is freighted, right? This is a religious space. I'm not a religious person, and you may not be either, but it is still a space that comes with extra kind of weight to it, right? So you have made a liminal journey into this room, and now you're in private space, right? Here we are. Every Greek play... I'm putting this over here now because you can't be trusted. You'd better be more trustworthy than they are, or you, sunshine, are going to be in big trouble even though you have got nice hair. So every Greek play is set in a liminal space... Right, every Sophoclean play is set in a liminal space, one single location. So in the case of Oedipus the King, which is the one we're going to look at today, right, that location is between public and private space. So behind the characters, behind the action of this play, is um, the Royal Palace of Thebes. Right? We can't go in because it's not a movie. We haven't got cameras. can't follow the characters inside. The action's going to come out and be played to us. It's a play. That's how plays work. Right? But outside, in front of the performers, as it were, is the city of Thebes. There's no point in us trying to go out there. There are countless stories out there, right? That's where epic lives. Tragedy needs a dense character cast, right? Otherwise, we're just going to get too distracted. It's not going to work for us. So all the action is going to take place on this space, public space out here, private space behind us, right? Unity of place. Now, unity of place is absolutely the case in soaps. It's not true of all drama, 
Who watches the Fast and Furious films? Anyone? Just me? Yeah? Right, so what happens when they change locations in Fast and Furious? How do you know? Um, How do you know? Seventh one is great, isn't it? Uh, Seventh one is no, just great. But, I mean, that's what happens in all of them, to be honest with you. I, I've seen all eight, and they get in a car and drive out of it. It's, that pretty much sums up the entire genre. A man with enormous muscles and no hair, and a lady in a very small bikini drive out of it in a nice car. That is the whole of Fast and Furious. They're so good. But, yes. That's exactly what they do. That is exactly what they do. Give me back my can of Coke. Give it back. Give it back. Give it back. Jeez. You're making me swear in church. This is so... I'm such... You're such a bad influence. Look at you with your lovely angelic face. Not angelic at all. Jeez. So, you're absolutely right. They write it on the screen, right? Because we don't... It's an adventure story, right? It's not a tragedy. You don't go and see... When you went to see Fast and Furious, you don't go and expect it to be a tragedy, do you? No, you expect a happy ending, right? Some hot men are going to go and steal some cars and then there's going to be some hot girls and then at the end they're all going to drink beer and talk about family and it's going to be delightful, right? That's what we're expecting from the Fast and Furious. I mean, we're expecting a really cool heist where they rob really cool cars off train. Fast and Furious 5, in case you're wondering. So good. It's one of the great heist sequences. Who's seen 5? Yeah, it's one of the great heist sequences in film. I'm genuinely not kidding. It's so good. So, um... We're expecting a happy ending, right? But in tragedy, we need that intensity. But you're absolutely right. In Fast and Furious, they can change locations all the time. Rio de Janeiro, they write it on the beach, don't they? In text, right across the screen. Because everywhere is beautiful and sunny, apart from in Seven when they come to London. Sorry, everyone. Uh, raining. Um, but it's sports cars, it's nice weather, that's what we're going to get. We don't need unity of place. Tragedy needs it, soap has it, right? Unity of time is the next thing Aristotle tells us that we require. Right? Unity of time means that all the action is going to take place in a single day. Right, time's going to move forward. There's not going to be flashbacks. Do you know what I mean by flashbacks? Are you all Christopher Nolan film fans? I'm not really, I have to be honest, but he uses flashbacks really consistently, if not interestingly, let's say. Look at me, loaded. Um, but, so, right, it's never going to happen in a Greek tragedy that the characters are going to go, remember what happened 20 years ago, and then there's going to be a dissolve, and then we're going to find out what happened 20 years ago. That's not going to happen, right? It's never going to happen that somebody's going to fall asleep and wake up in six weeks' time. All the action will take place in a single day. Unity of place, unity of time, right? That's absolutely true of soaps. Time only ever moves linear, only ever moves forwards in soaps. In fact, sometimes, in, um, there are quite sort of celebrated episodes of EastEnders, they have real-time episodes. Do you know what I mean? When 28 minutes in the story is the same as 28 minutes in the world, right? Their time and our time coincide. So not just unity, but parity of time, right? So unity of place, unity of time, no subtext. There's no subtext in Greek tragedies. There's no subtext in soap operas. This is why my mom doesn't like them, because people walk on screen in EastEnders and they go, I'm very angry and it's your fault. And that is how an episode of EastEnders will routinely begin. And my mom doesn't like people shouting. Um, and she also doesn't like conflict, which is a shame, because that's pretty much all of drama. Um, but there is no subtext. That's absolutely true in Greek tragedy. In Greek tragedy, at the beginning of, let's say, Euripides Medea, someone says, I'm very worried about Medea's children because she's very upset that Jason, her husband, has left her, and 90 minutes later, she has murdered them. There is no subtext. You're not supposed to say, but what do you mean when you say you're worried about the children? She means she's worried about the children, someone's going to murder them. Yep, there they are dead. Right? No subtext. No subtext. <coughs> You will wait till Chekhov for subtext. At no point in a Greek tragedy is anyone ever going to say, oh, I wish I were in Moscow, and then go and shoot themselves in the head in a cherry orchard. It's not going to happen. They don't have cherry orchards. No one's invented Moscow. There aren't guns. So, why was I... No, really, there must have been a reason. So, 
Greek tragedy and soaps have this incredible and ongoing overlap. And I went up to Elstree, where they film EastEnders, where they do Strictly as well, um, to talk to the people who write EastEnders. I went into their writer's room, big whiteboard on the wall. I spoke to the guy who was their story editor for seven years. Big whiteboard on the wall. And on it, they have got, that's their ideas board, right? And on it, they have got the clippings from newspapers, which are all tragic, in case you're wondering. Woman reverses over own toddler, etc. Um, and someone's gone, oh, it's an ill wind. Cut it out, pin it up. Um, and then... Up there too, index cards, coloured index cards with the titles of Greek plays. I said, are you honestly telling me that this is what you do? You sit here and go, well, how can we make Hippolytus work better in EastEnders? And the guy I spoke to said, we will sit here and if we can't work out the story, one of us will say to the others, how can we, and I quote, Greek it up? Isn't that great? How can we get the drama of family set against family into this story? His favourite, when I asked him, was the Oresteia. Right, which sets parents against children, children against parents. The definition of a soap opera, if you're wondering what makes soap different from any other kind of drama, is that every character should have a relationship with every other character. Does that make sense? They should be related somewhere or another. Niece, sister, brother, partner, employee. They, everyone must be connected to everyone else. That's what makes it a soap. Right? So... Um, other things that Aristotle tells us in his Poetics is that every scene, and my God, if only all screenwriters took this to heart now, every scene should advance the plot and reveal character. Right? Every single scene. That is a lot to ask of things, but it really works. And also, he's going to tell us that um, every Greek tragic hero, and I use hero there as an ungendered term, I mean, there are female heroes as well as male heroes, um, Every a heroine implies something else, doesn't it? It's like Penelope Pitstop being tied to some train tracks and going, help, help. Um, so we won't go with it. Um, they should have a fatal flaw, right? And that fatal flaw, the word in Greek is hamartia, which means, comes from hamartano, the Greek verb, which means to fire a target and miss it, to miss the mark, right? So every character, every um, lead character in a Greek play will have this fatal flaw. And you'll see that the best tragedies have, it's a good characteristic taken to a negative degree. Does that make sense? So Medea, we were just talking about her, she murders her children. She's a good wife, right? She loves Jason, she loves her husband. But when he leaves her, her love turns into a rage. She can't cope, and in order to punish him, the only way she knows how, she kills his new wife and his new father-in-law, and then she kills their children, right? So she kills her own children, an act of incredible self-destruction because it's the only way she can hurt the person who's hurt her, right? So she goes from being a good wife to being a terrible mother within a, a heartbeat, really, of bad behaviour um, because that's the, way she, that's the only way she can think of to punish somebody, right? I mean, it's extreme behaviour, but that's what happens in Greek tragedies. This, by the way, is why you don't always get these stories coming to a full, uh, sort of full version in soap operas because a, a Greek tragedy is about 90, 100 minutes long. That's one, one week's worth of EastEnders, pretty much. And you can't have that many deaths, even in soap. Otherwise, it would become problematic. Um, so when I asked the guys at EastEnders what they didn't use, Medea was the answer. Um, they, had, they had introduced two characters called Max and Tanya uh, quite some time ago now, but at the time it was relatively recently. And the idea was that it would be a Medea storyline. He would have an affair and she would punish him by killing their children. But soaps operate in an incredibly Judeo-Christian universe. You can't have unpunished crime so in the end they decided they couldn't it would just have a really long courtroom drama and it would be a waste of everyone's energy so um i thought we might talk a little bit about shall we talk about the history of what time do i have to finish uh, i never know what time it is okay do we have time to talk about democracy and theater I feel like we do look at you all excited um so 
I literally can't put this down because all of you are untrustworthy. I'm just going to have to sit and swig it for the entire way through. So, um, well, let's, so drama begins. Do you know this already? Drama begins in the 5th century BCE, so two and a half thousand years ago, right? Democracy begins at the very end of the 6th century, but there's no other previous record of democracy existing anywhere, right? Now, when I say democracy in Athens, I'm talking about a very specific kind of democracy. I'm talking about direct democracy, and I'm talking about a very limited democracy. So let's do the direct bit first, right? Direct democracy means that when you want to vote on something, you don't vote for an MP to go and do it for you like we do. We have representative democracy, right? We vote for a representative, or maybe you didn't vote for your representative. Maybe well, you're not old enough to vote, and I, didn't, I don't live here, so I didn't vote. And if I had voted, I might have voted for the person who didn't get in, right? So they're representing me, but they don't necessarily represent what I would like them to represent. Do you see what I mean? There are limitations. Are we agreed to representative democracy, which does not mean, by the way, that you shouldn't vote. Of course, when you get the chance, you should vote. This is literally the only democratic power you have, and you should use it, just so you know. So, um, in direct democracy, what happens in Athens is that you go to a place called the Pnyx, which is a hill, and it is spelled P-N-Y-X, so it's a shame you can't have it in Scrabble. Um, and uh, you go to the Pnyx, and you vote like this, by raising your hand, Right? People who don't feel like going get rounded up by rope which has been dipped in red dye so your clothes would be marked. Exactly the way we do now with uh, dipping, um, with putting uh, dye on, on money that gets you know, transported by securical van so that if you try and open it, in, in, if you are in Fast and Furious and not as successful, if you try and open it then the dye goes all over the money and you are busted and it goes all over you and so on and so on. Um, that is what they do but a slightly less high-tech version of that, right? And so you turn up and you vote. Should we, go to, should we crush the people of Milos for rebelling against us? And everybody goes, yes, yeah, we should, or no, no, we shouldn't, right? But when I say you, or when I say we, I don't mean that many of us, right? Because I wouldn't be allowed to go, and nor would you, 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 because it's just for men. Right? Women don't get a vote until the 20th century in the UK, a little bit earlier in New Zealand and Australia. Um, and women don't get a vote at all in ancient Athens, but not just women. All men who aren't Athenian citizens also don't get a vote. Right? So if you were born in uh, not Athens, but another bit of Greece, and you moved to Athens, you didn't get a vote. Right? If you were born in another part of the world that wasn't Greece, and you moved there, you wouldn't get a vote. You'd be a metic, a foreigner. Uh, and a resident alien is how it's always translated, which clearly sounds hilarious. Um, and so uh, it is a very limited democracy, but it is democracy nonetheless. So if you're going to go to war, you get to vote. If you're a guy who's going to go and fight in the war, you at least get the chance to say, yeah, I think we should fight this war. You don't just get told that it's going to happen to you. right? It's not nothing. So democracy begins at the very end of the 6th century BC and then briefly replaced by two tyrants. And then it's, they are overthrown and democracy returns at the start of the 5th century BCE. And uh, Greece is, is then immediately tested by war, the Persian invasions of 490 and 480. The earliest surviving tragedy that we have is from 472 by Aeschylus. It's called The Persians. It is the only play from the ancient world which isn't set in the distant past of myth. I have to tell you this is a, a distinction that we make, but the Greeks would not have made, right? They don't see times with dragons in as myth rather than history. They just see it as history that's longer ago. I suppose we do that, do we, a bit with Robin Hood or King Arthur maybe, a little bit? A little bit, maybe not so much. Um, but the Persians is set, it's, it's produced in 472. It's set in the previous war, 480, which Aeschylus had fought in, by the way. The playwright had fought in it, had fought in this war. The audience watching it had fought in this war. And yet he's written a play from the perspectives of the other side. The play is called The Persians, right? 
And it asks his audience of, of just men, almost certainly just men, to imagine what it was like being the women folk waiting for their men folk who have invaded and fought the men who are watching this play to come home. Don't you think that's the most incredible act of empathy? The very earliest play that we have is written by a man, it's performed by men, it's performed to men who had fought in a war against an enemy, the Persians, a common enemy, right? And the very earliest example of drama that we have says, imagine what it's like being those guys. Imagine what it's like being the other side. Imagine what it's like being women when you're men. And imagine what it's like waiting for men to come home from war. That's the earliest play that we have, is asking an audience to make all those empathetic leaps. You would never, ever have got a drama during the Iraq war on the BBC, which did that, ever, because the Daily Mail would have imploded in molten rage, which would have been a price worth paying, but it would never, ever have happened. It is the most incredible, audacious thing to do, and it's the earliest drama that we have, right? And Aeschylus invents drama. To all intents and purposes, Aeschylus invents. Every time you see anything on screen or on stage, you're watching something which Aeschylus began, right? Because before him, there is no drama that we would consider drama. There's a solo performer, right? The most famous is a legendary performer called Thespis, from which we get the word... Yes, who was that? Yes. Exactly, from which we get the word thespian. So Thespis is a solo performer. Thespis is going to deliver a, a sung monologue, a performed monologue, and there'll be a chorus of people dancing, but they won't interact with each other, right? Just a solo performance, right? That's what happens. And then Aeschylus comes along, and he thinks, he looks at Thespis performing, and he thinks, do you know what would be great, though, is if there was another person on stage, and they could have a conversation. Aeschylus invents dialogue, right? Any time you see two people on a screen talking to each other, you owe it to Aeschylus. It was his idea, right? Literally, no one had thought of it before then. It is two and a half thousand years old. As ideas go, it's lasted pretty well, right? And then Sophocles comes along, and he sees the two people on stage in an Aeschylus play. And every Aeschylus play can be performed with just two actors, by the way, every single one, right? Because they wear masks. Persona is the word in case you're wondering. So when you put on your persona, you are literally putting on a mask in its uh, original terms. Um, and so you could play multiple characters and come on and off and on and off. is slightly different each time. It would all be fine. You could do it with your voice. It would all be fine. Sophocles comes along. He sees these two performers on a stage and he thinks, wouldn't it be great though if they were on stage talking about whatever they're about to do and then someone else could come on stage and they would be able to say, you'll never guess what I've just heard. Right? Sophocles invents the third performer. Before him, it doesn't exist. And any Sophocles play, any Euripides play, can be performed with just three actors. Right? You literally never need more than that. Right? And then there's a chorus. And just to give you an idea of how intimately connected the democratic process and the chorus are, Right? and the whole theatre project is. These plays are performed at a festival, a religious festival called the Dionysia, right? a festival of Dionysus, god of theatre and also of wine. So people are drunk when they watch these plays. Remember how they were high art to us? No, you should be hammered. Um, and it's also a day when there's sacrifices to the gods, which means that um, you're, you're going to have the smell of meat in the air, it's going to smell like an abattoir or maybe like a barbecue. Obviously, I would have to have some chickpeas because I'm vegetarian and that's the rules. Um, but there would be a, a smell of meat. You wouldn't often get it because you wouldn't be able to afford it uh, in 5th century Athens. That would be the way of things. So this would be a big day out for you. You're getting wine and you're getting meat to eat. And then you get three plays plus a satire play on three consecutive days. So nine tragedies in total. And then they are voted for. And the chorus on stage is made up of your friends and neighbours. They're chosen by lot. They aren't auditioned. They're just chosen at random. So some of them are going to be rubbish. 
I guess you put those people at the back, right? And some of them are going to be great and you're going to be rooting for or hoping they fall over, depending on how much you like them. Your brothers-in-law, your you know, friends and neighbours, your employers, right? That's who the cast is. And if you're wondering about how much you have to pay to get in, because we talked about how ticket prices might put people off going to the theatre, you don't have to pay anything. It's free to go and see a Greek tragedy in ancient Greece. It's paid for as part of a process of what's called liturgies. They don't have a system of income tax in the 5th century. They have an empire, which pays for a lot. But additionally, they have liturgies, um, which is uh, like a, a very high tax for just super rich people to pay. Right? And one of those taxes that you might pay if you were a super rich citizen, you might be a trirach, which means you would pay to equip a warship, a ship with three banks of oars, a trireme, three triremos uh, oars, um, you would pay to keep that on water for a year, right? That would be an example of a liturgy. As a rich citizen, you might keep a warship, i.e. your fellow citizens safe, you might keep a warship in good nick for a year. Now, you live by the sea. I grew up in Birmingham, which is as far from the sea as you can possibly get and still be, you know, in Britain. So that's expensive, right? A ship for a year, that's an expensive thing to maintain. Yes? Yes? And a warship sounds expensive to me. And remember, if you get it wrong and everyone drowns in a sea battle you could literally be put to death. So there's an incentive to spend the money well, isn't there? I mean, for those of us who watched in total horror as Grenfell Tower burned, I would be fine with a system which said, you're held up to the consequences of your actions, right? Right? Yes? How long has the young chorus been on for like, how long in history? Like, is a chorus in a play? Yeah. Since the very, very beginning. Since before we even have drama is the answer. Yeah, for, since the very beginning. Absolutely. And they are made up of the demos, the ordinary people, from the very beginning. And it's only in a production now where you would expect to see them to have been auditioned. And now people almost always go for, like, a singing, they cast singers and dancers, rightly, because the choral odes, the bit which they perform, are written in verse, very beautiful verse in Greek, and often very beautiful in translation. Um, and so it's performed um, in a way which the... the spoken parts of a play are in a different meter so you can get the sense that they're going to do. and often they seem inappropriate to us but to the Greeks it would have seemed completely reasonable that for example um, at the exact moment when Medea is debating whether or not to kill her children which is going to be one of the most horrifying moments in all of Greek tragedy because children almost never speak in Greek tragedy almost not at all right and one of the I think two times in the surviving tragedy we don't have all of the tragedies we have seven plays uh, by Sophocles and he wrote uh, about 150 just to give you an idea what percentage we have we have 18 plays by Euripides depending on whether you believe that the rhesus is by him or not which doesn't matter we have seven plays by Aeschylus but in almost none do children ever ever speak and in Euripides Medea the moment where she decides she delivers this extraordinary monologue where she tries to decide whether or not she's going to kill them and she says, you know, I can't because they're my children and it's the worst thing that could ever happen to me. And, but I have to because it's the only way I can punish Jason for betraying me. But I can't because I love them and they're only children. But I have to because otherwise my enemies will say they can thwart me and there's nothing I can do about it. And so she talks herself into it. It's a horrific, extraordinary piece of writing. And then she walks off stage and the chorus delivers this beautiful ode to love and how lovely it is. And we're like, what? What? But for the Greeks, it's, it's like a... It's, it's, it gives us a kind of a moment of beauty, a moment of sweetness in the middle of this horrifying kind of tightening grip of tragedy, of horror. And so sometimes the chorus, and then extraordinarily, and it happens in, I think, in just this one, it might be two, it might be in two plays. Um, she goes inside to kill the children. We hear the children scream. 
We hear the children scream, don't, don't kill us, mother. It's so awful. And the chorus, they never do it. The chorus comments on the action. They never participate, except in Euripides, Hecabe, uh, also killing children. Sorry, I seem like I'm obsessed. You are all safe, I promise. Um, but, unless you steal my coke. Um, but uh, in that, and also in Euripides, Medea, the chorus says, we should go and stop her. We should go and stop her before she does something that we can't fix. And they don't. They stand there because they're the chorus and they can't act. And so they are always limited by the kind of constraints of their role. But how horrifying to watch this woman decide to kill her children, to walk off. We can hear it happening. And there are all these women on stage, uh, men dressed as women because that's how it works, but not in a funny way, just that's how it is. Um, and they're there going, we must stop her, we must go and stop her. And they don't. I mean, just horrifying. Right, look, really, we haven't got time to talk about Medea just because you're a bad influence. That was so interesting for me, thank you. Um, why, were we why was I, really, why was I telling you about that? Honestly. I've got absolutely no idea. Anyone? Nothing. Liturgies! <laughs> so, you might pay to keep a trireme on the water. Whew, did not think we were going to get back to there. You might pay to keep a trireme on the water uh, for a year, or you might be a choregos. See if you can guess what the choregos does. It's very relevant to your previous question. He does, he pays for the chorus. That's exactly what he does. He pays for their costumes, he pays for their training, their rehearsal time, everything, right? So let's just imagine what it must be like living in a world where the defense of the realm warships are seen on a par with arts. <sighs> it was a golden time, Patrick. It was a golden time. So the Corregos pays for everything. So as an audience, you go in for free. You go in for free because somebody else paid for it. If you're wondering why rich people pay for things without any question, well, that's a really good, and this bothers me a lot because it seems to me that we are presented with, and you must have observed the same thing, I think. We're presented with a narrative now which says that if you can get away with not paying, say, tax, that's sort of you would. Do you know what I mean? Like when the, the, every year we get, oh, Starbucks has sold 8 billion cups of coffee and they've paid 18p in tax. And we all go, oh. But people then kind of go, well, yeah, but, you know, we should change the law then. I mean, that's just a loophole. They're just using it. Uh, that's what you would do. You think, well, it isn't what I would do because I'm an ethical human being. So I would expect the standards of ethical human beings to prevail. But they don't always, right? But here's the thing. People didn't always used to hoard money when they had earned lots of it or inherited lots of it. They used to spend it on projects that made them look good to everybody else. That's why there's Carnegie Hall, named after Carnegie. That's why the Getty Villa and Museum and Centre exist in Los Angeles, right? Because a philanthropic rich person spent a ton of money looking good, right? And so liturgies are an example of that, aren't they? This is a moment where you can show off to your fellow citizens. My worship is great. Look how good my chorus is dressed. But not everybody wanted to pay them. And so here's the thing. The Greeks have a system for that. So if you were a rich person and somebody said, right, you need to pay to equip a chorus to be a choregos for a year, um, and you didn't want to, then this is what you might do. You might say, I haven't got any money. I don't know what you're talking about. Right? I mean, that's what people do, isn't it? They hide their money now sometimes from the tax man because that seems like a reasonable thing to them to do even though it's clearly unethical and doesn't pay for the things that we all require like education for you and roads for me and you know a health service for all of us and so on and this is the system that the Greeks had to beat that if you were nominated by one of your friends or neighbors for example to pay a liturgy and you denied that you were rich enough to have to then you could but you had to swap properties with the person who nominated you isn't that great? Isn't that great? So you turn around and go, yeah, no, I don't have any money. Okay, so if I said about Amazon, I think Amazon's not paying enough tax. 
I think Amazon should pay a bit more tax. And Amazon go, no, we've only sold two books in the UK this year. Obviously, we've paid exactly the right amount of tax. They can do that, but then they should have to swap with me. So they can have my flat and I'll have Amazon. I think that's a great system. Don't you think that's a great system? I think it would totally make people pay tax again. I, I'm in favour entirely of this. How long do I have? Right, shall we look at Oedipus the King and everything that you learned already from Aristotle's poetics and see if we can make it work? Yes? 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 yes. yes. Okay. So um, we're going to do, I'll do all of it, um, but, but we're going to go through it quite a lick, right? So you're going to need to concentrate because otherwise you're going to get lost. And worse, I might get lost. Um, but that's all right because luckily I've done this 200 times so I can get back, um, as has been amply proven with triremes. Um, so... At uh, the start of the play, all this action is going to take place in a single day, right? Remember how we talked about unity of time? Everything in this play, and there is 20 years of story here, is going to take place in a single day. And that is difficult. So I want you to look at how he structures it, because it is genuinely one of the most impressive feats in world literature ever, right? Remember, this is right near the beginning of theatre, so to do something so difficult so well the first time... It's pretty impressive. Like I say, Sophocles wrote 150 plays, roughly 150 plays. He lived to be 84. Um, I always say this because people think that everyone dies young in the ancient world, right? Because life expectancy is about 30, 35. But that's because lots and lots and lots and lots of people die as babies. It's not because nobody makes it to old age. You see what I mean, right? It's an average. It's how averages don't work. So if you're a baby in the ancient world, you've got a really poor chance, we'll talk about it a bit more in a minute, of surviving being born. It's a very dangerous business being born in the ancient world. And then if you make it through the process of being born, you still have to survive all the things that people have to survive now, like cot death. You have to survive all of that. Childhood diseases weren't invented for you. They have existed forever, right? And so if you made it to five, great news, you stood a reasonable chance of getting it to 12, right? But roughly two-thirds of people make it to 12. So about a third of people die as children, right? And then at 12, if you're a boy, you go and fight in a war. And if you're a girl, you start giving birth and they cull their respective generations, right? Boys get killed in war, girls get killed because they're not old enough to give birth, really. Um, and so that's what happens. And at the start of Medea, the start of Euripides' Medea, in her extraordinary monologue um, on the kind of lot of women, she makes one of the most incredible... This play, remember, is written by a man, it's being performed by a man, this role, um, to an audience of men. And yet, this incredible act of empathy, she says, I would rather stand, she says, it's terrible being married to somebody who doesn't love you um, because men can go out and have adventures and meet people, but women have to stay home and are cloistered and it's very lonely and isolated and I'm foreign anyway and blah, blah, blah. And it's the most incredible monologue and the self-servingness of it is right there. She says, it's really extra hard for me because I'm a stranger in a strange land. I migrated here with Jason and I don't have like a father to look after me or a brother to defend my interests. And we're watching it like, yeah, Madea, you don't have a father or a brother, but a bit of it. That is sort of because you killed your brother and dismembered him and then threw the body parts into the sea so your dad would stop to pick them up and not chase you as you left eloping with your boyfriend and the golden fleece. So well done on feeling sorry for yourself, but a little bit it is your fault that you don't have a brother. What with you having killed and dismembered him? And it is a little bit your fault that your dad is cross with you because of that, a little bit, a little bit. It's not like you stayed out late, you dismembered your brother. So it's a magnificent monologue in terms of self-serving. It's absolutely tremendous, but... Then she says, and it is one of the most incredible, and just one of the most incredible sentiments to see expressed two and a half thousand years ago. She says, you know, you'll say men have it tough because they have to go and fight in a war. Well, I would rather stand three times in the front line of battle than give birth to a single child. It is one of the most famous lines in all of Greek literature, and with good reason, right? She is explicitly heroizing childbirth because it is dangerous and people die doing it. 
She's right to do it. And that is why life expectancy is 30, 35 in the ancient world. It is because of childhood diseases. It's because of incredible unsafety in the birthing process, it's which kills teenage girls just as much as it kills infants. Um, and it's because of war. Uh, but you still get old people like Sophocles. Why did we get onto that? It doesn't matter. So Oedipus the king. Do you remember? We were going to do it. It was about an hour ago. Um, Oedipus the king is described by Aristotle as the structurally most perfect play. And I'm going to prove to you, I hope, that that is true. All the action is going to take place in a single day. All the action is going to take place in a single location. Unity of time, unity of place. This is a story which spans multiple cities in Greece, Delphi, Corinth, Thebes, and yet it's all going to take place in this liminal space. Royal House of Thebes behind us, City of Thebes in front of us. Got it? Good. So, at the start of the play, Oedipus is on stage. He is king of Thebes, right? And his wife, Jocasta, she's a bit older than him. That's crucial. That's not me being bitchy. Also on stage. And the chorus comes on. The chorus, in the, for the purposes of this production, will be one person's voice, because otherwise I will lose my mind. Um, the chorus comes on, and they say, Oedipus, king, there is plague. There's plague, and we're dying of it, and we need you to fix it. And what we need you to do is um, send somebody away to the oracle at Delphi. Right? Apollo has a temple at Delphi, and so that's where you send somebody if you need to know something. Right? And then you'll get a nomic utterance, which you can't really conclude anything about one way or the other, but you'll feel like you've...